audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to Session 13, The Gift of Healing, Part C, from the series, Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. All right, so we're in the middle of Session 13 of our series on the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the gift of healing. Um, so we've been in this a couple weeks already. Our first week on this topic, we looked at the gift of healing in Scripture. Last time, we looked at different attitudes and movements related to healing within both Judaism and Christianity. So today, I want to focus on assessing modern healing movements. Um, the big one that we're going to be looking at is the movement known as faith healing. Uh, so faith healing is, we're talking about the belief that any believer can and should experience miraculous divine healing uh, throughout their lives. So uh, divine healing is available to all believers if we would only avail ourselves of it. So I've heard it put this way, uh, that God's will for every believer is to walk in complete health until the day God chooses to take you home. We should all be like Moses right, who lived to a ripe old age, and yet his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, Deuteronomy 34, 7. So the idea is that this is God's will and God's ideal for every believer. And, you know, of course, that sounds great in theory, right? Like, that would be wonderful. Uh, but there's a problem. And the problem is that sometimes believers get sick, right? Often believers do not experience miraculous divine healing. So, of course, this begs the question, and this is the question we all have to wrestle with, and that is, why doesn't God heal everyone? We were talking about that last time. That's the, that's the question we ended with last time. Uh, and it's related to a bigger and a deeper question, and that is, why do bad things happen to good people? So, if you remember last time we looked at this diagram so here we have a triangle, and there's three points on the triangle. One point says God is good. Another point says God is all-powerful, or he is in control. And another point says sometimes bad things happen to good people. And this is really a logic puzzle, right? Because logically, it doesn't make sense to have all those together. If you took out any one of these three points, you could make the other two fit, right? If you say, well, God's not good, well, then you can say, well, he's powerful, but he allows bad things to happen to good people because he's not good. You could try and make it make logical sense that way. Of course, that's not true, right? That's, that would be false. You could try and take away God's power and that he's in control. You could say, well, God's good, but he doesn't really have control over everything. That's why sometimes bad things happen to good people. Um, so faith healing has a very simple and clever solution to this puzzle. They just take out this part of the triangle. They say, well, bad things don't actually happen to good people. If something bad happens to you, it means you've done something bad, right? Bad things only happen to bad people. If you are living the way you, sh you ought to, and uh, if you are really walking in righteousness and in faith, then um, those bad things, you know, sickness, disease, things like that wouldn't happen to you. 
<coughs> so, you know, if, if it's God, here's the logic. If it's God's will to heal everyone, which faith healing asserts that it is, but not everyone experiences healing, then where's the hang-up? Whose fault is it, right? Well, obviously, God cannot be at fault, so the fault must be in us. If you fail to experience healing, it's because you lack faith or you're spiritually deficient. Uh, if you truly had faith and were walking as you ought to, you would be healthy. So you can see how the theology behind faith healing is very closely linked with prosperity theology, right? God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and successful. And, you know, of course, there's nothing wrong with being healthy and wealthy in and of itself, right? There's nothing wrong with being successful. Um, that's, you know, we, that's what we should be. We should be trying to live in good health to the best of our ability. We should be trying to walk in success as God defines success. Um, but the Bible's clear that, in my opinion, the Bible's clear that the norm for believers is not that we will always have everything going peachy and wonderful all our lives, right? Um, so let's take a, some look. Let's take a look at some places in the Bible that address these issues. So first of all, we're going to look at the book of Job. Um, if you want, you can turn there. We're just, I'm not going to be reading much specifically because it's a big book. <laughs> There's a lot in it. It would take a long time to get through it. But basically... Job stands as a paradigm of the enigma of why the righteous suffer. So Job is part of this wisdom literature in the Tanakh, right? And it takes up this question that has plagued philosophers, scholars, and theologians down through the centuries. Why do bad things happen to good people? So Job is presented, he's this righteous and blameless man who experiences these devastating catastrophes. In one moment, his wealth, his children are all taken from him, right? And after that, his health is taken from him. Now, obviously, this presents a problem for proponents of health and wealth theology, right? Job was righteous, yet he lost his health and his wealth. That kind of runs contrary contrary to health and wealth teaching. Um, you know, that, that simply can't be. There, there, must, there must be something we're missing, right? And so, so faith healing proponents will often come up with some sort of explanation uh, of fault that Job had to explain why he experienced these things. So here's, a, here's just an example, uh, a quote. There were causes for Job's illness, the most important was that he let fear into his heart, Job 3.25. You cannot have fear and have faith. You cannot have faith and have fear. Job was self-righteous. Sickness did not purify Job. The sicker he got, the more self-righteous he became. Why did Job get sick? There, were, there was more than one reason, but chief among them was that Job allowed fear to come into his heart. So that's a quote from a faith-healing proponent trying to explain how on earth it is that Job had all these catastrophes befall him? Well, it was obviously his fault. He did something wrong, and that's what caused these to happen. And so he had fear, he didn't have faith, and he was self-righteous. And there's other 
other explanations that people try and give. But, <coughs> but that's not what the book of Job says, is it? You know, look, look at the, the, the biblical account is very clear and very specific on this point, right? He was, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read it. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. That word blameless, Tom, it literally means like perfect, right? He was he was, he was upright, he was blameless. Same kind of language used of Zechariah and Elizabeth in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, right? He was a righteous person, right? He feared God and he turned away from evil. And that's not just the opinion of the book's writer. According to the account, this was the view of God himself. In verse 8, God himself says, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Even God considered him to be righteous, right? We read the same thing in chapter 2, verse 3. And, and elsewhere in scripture, Job is seen as a model for righteousness. We read about him in Ezekiel 14, in James 5, 11. Job is, is righteous, right? That's the, 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 the book goes to great lengths to show that Job did not deserve what he got, right? It was, not, it was not something that came upon him because he did something bad and was being punished for it. So, and, and, and the writer of the book goes to great lengths to also emphasize that Job maintained his righteousness even after he was afflicted. In verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And in 2 verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, right? Even after he experienced these things. So if we let this ancient book speak for itself, this stands as a witness to the inexplicable reality that we see around us all the time. And that is the reality of unjust suffering. That sometimes bad things happen to good people without denying God's power, without denying his goodness. Sometimes Bad things happen to good people. But ironically, you know, the purpose of the book is not to try to solve that mystery. The purpose of the book is not to come up with a systematic explanation that gets rid of all these tensions and suddenly makes us, gives us a solution to our logic puzzle here that we have, this triangle. Instead, we're left with the conclusion that the answer is beyond human understanding. Right? Because, you know, Job never receives an answer as to why these terrible things happen to him. You know, you read and, and, and you know, he's struggling. Like, he's, he's really struggling with, with what happened to him and, 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 and asking, you know, demanding an explanation. He never gets an answer as to why all this happened. Right? And I think, I think the message for us is that sometimes... We never, sometimes we never know why something happened, right? When we go through hard times, we never know why it took place. But the Bible's clear that it wasn't because of some sin or error or lack of faith on his part, right? It wasn't because of something he did wrong. God's ways are higher than our ways, right? 
Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, a more important question that the book of Job is occupied with is this. How to be during suffering, right? How, you know, this is a much more personal issue. What kind of attitude and reaction should I have when I go through hard times? That's the question. And that's, that's what the book spends 40-some chapters on, right? Is dealing with that issue. We may never know why something happens, but the question is, what do we do with it? What do we do about it, right? How, how, how do we act and react when we're going through suffering? And the book of Job gives two different but complementary answers to the question as it portrays Job's reactions to his suffering. The first answer is expressed in the prose introduction to the book in the first two chapters. Job reacts to the disasters that come upon him with calm acceptance of the will of God. He can bless God both for what he has given and what he has taken away, both for good and for harm. The second answer to the question, what am I to do when I am suffering, emerges from the distress and turmoil of Job's mind as it is revealed in his poetic speeches. So that's between chapter 3 and chapter 31. When he can no longer simply accept what is happening to him and he becomes bitter and angry as a sense of isolation from God overwhelms him and he even feels he is being persecuted by God, Job does what he must do. He does not try to suppress his hostility toward God for what has happened to him. He says that he will speak out in the anguish of his spirit and complain in the bitterness of his soul. And he does not complain or shout into the air to express his anger and frustration. His bitterness is directed towards God. Even though Job is at times rash and unjust in the way he speaks of God, his protests are spoken in the right direction, for he realizes that it is God himself with whom he has to do. It is just because he keeps on addressing himself to God that in the end, God reveals himself to him, chapters 39 to 41. Job's suffering does not cease because God responds to him. He discovers that he has misjudged God, but his anguish has in some way been calmed by his encounter with God. And despite Job's bitter words against God throughout the book, at the end, amazingly enough, God actually praises him for speaking of him what is right. That can only mean that Job has directed himself to God in his suffering and has demanded an explanation. If the book could be heard as speaking to sufferers in Job's position, people who are suffering, that is, for no reason that they themselves can think of, what it would be saying is, let Job the patient sufferer be your model so long as that is possible for you. But when you cannot bear that any longer, let your grief and anger and impatience direct you towards God, for he is ultimately the origin of the suffering and, the only, and it is only through encounter with him that the anguish can be relieved. So, in other words, when we're going through these things, we need to let that take us to God not away from him, right? The arguments back and forth in chapters 3 to 37 are nuanced and highly poetic. Uh, but at the core, we see Job's three friends 
striving to conjure up some reason for Job's suffering, right? They're like that quote that we just read by that proponent of faith healing. <coughs> They're saying, well, you must have done something to deserve this, right? And so where they fail Job is that they take their cue from their doctrine instead of from the evidence of their eyes and ears. They know that Job is a good man, and they wrong him by thinking that his suffering is a witness against his goodness. And so I think we have to be very careful not to do that ourselves. We have to be very careful not to judge others in that way. Okay. So, Sometimes I've wondered, why is prosperity theology so popular when it seems so clearly, in my opinion, to contradict what the scriptures say? But I think it's, it's, it's easy to see why. Because it, you know, it appeals to some of the most basic human desires. We all want to be healthy and wealthy, right? The lust for riches and immortality are two of the greatest yearnings that have existed in the history of man, right? We see that in the, in the search for the fountain of youth and the lost city of gold. These are things since ancient times that people have been striving after, health and wealth. The elixir, the magical cure. Prosperity teachers present Christianity as a means to health and wealth, and that's attractive, right? There's going to be people wanting to follow that and wanting to listen that. But there are three main problems with this sort of theology. And here I'm, I'm narrowing in specifically on the health side, right? Faith healing um, and, and related ideas. And the three problems are, first of all, I believe it's contrary to the scriptures. Uh, secondly, it's contrary to the experience of believers throughout history. And thirdly, it produces bad fruit by condemning righteous people, right? Just like Job's friends. You have to come up with some reason why someone is going through their sickness or suffering that they're going through. <coughs> so, faith healing rests on the premise that sickness is always the result of sin. So if someone gets sick, it's because they've sinned. And the sickness comes as a punishment for sin. Now, you know, we could, we could argue that sickness came into the world as a result of Adam's sin, right? The fall of mankind. We're all sinful. And in this sinful world, sickness and suffering exist on a global scale, right? But the idea that all individual sickness and suffering can be traced back to that individual's sin is not in accordance with scriptures or with reality, right? But apparently, this, is, this was a popular idea even at the time of Yeshua. If you look in John chapter 9, the story of the blind man, uh, starting in verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples jump to this conclusion that someone must have sinned to cause him to be born blind. I mean, you think about it, well, how could, how could the, the man have sinned 
to cause him to be born blind. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But anyway, still, you know, people jump to conclusions like that, right? So, so the assumption is that there's, there must be a connection with sin here. And what does Yeshua reply? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Yeshua, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You know, it reminds me of what God says at the burning bush when he's talking to Moses. Exodus 4.11, he says, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And, you know, that's a profound statement in and of itself, right? Sometimes God chooses to allow certain things for his own divine purposes. We may not understand why. Sometimes, you know, it's his, he, he, it's his will. There are, in fact, some cases where an individual suffers from the consequences of their sin, right? That's, that's obvious. And in, in these cases, the connection between the individual's sin and their current circumstances are obvious. So I think, I think of three different kind of categories of this sort of thing. First of all, there's, you know, think of Miriam in Numbers chapter 12 where she's stricken with leprosy or, or wicked King Herod in Acts 12, 23 where he fails to give glory to God and so he's eaten by worms and dies. And, uh, or, you know, even like the plagues in Egypt, right? Or the plagues on Abimelech and his household for taking Sarah um, these sorts of things, right? God will sometimes, there, there, sometimes there will be like a miraculous plague, uh, some sort of sickness that comes that's from God as a punishment for something very specific, right? In these cases, it's obvious, right? It's not, it's not some, oh no, I, I don't know what I did wrong and God's angry at it. No, like it's obvious what's gone wrong, right? And a person is being judged, there's other times where sickness is the natural consequence of choices that we make. So, you know, I think of a friend of ours who became seriously sick and eventually died because of sinful choices he made prior to accepting Yeshua. Right? And he knew he was facing the consequences of his past, right? His own actions. And for whatever reason, God chose not to miraculously heal him in that case. We don't know why. You know, so, so sometimes we face consequences for our own choices. And becoming a believer does not always miraculously erase all those consequences. There may also be times when God allows certain things into our lives to get our attention, right? It could be to bring us to repentance on a certain issue. It could be to just because he wants us to rely on him, right? I think God is very gracious, and he makes it, you know, he'll, he'll speak to us in those times and, and uh, make it obvious, right? And our, our response needs to always be to turn to him in these things. But scripture is also clear that not every instance of sickness can be linked with a specific sin. And we have many examples in scripture of righteous people who endured sickness. So this is just a quick list that I pulled um, 
I compiled from, from the scriptures of individuals who've gone through sickness. So we have Jacob in Genesis 48, verse 1. It says how Jacob was sick. Uh, Elisha got sick. 2 Kings 13, 14, it says when Elisha was sick with the sickness from which he eventually died. And you know, that's something because like we just read this morning about Elisha performing all these healings and miracles, right? Elisha, Elisha was one known to be able to bring healing to people. And there's even the story of after Elisha is dead and he's, you know, he's buried in, in this tomb and, and uh, there is this funeral like years later and uh, there is uh, an army coming and they're like, quick, get rid of the body. And so they just throw him in Elisha's tomb because they didn't know where else to put him. And he touched Elisha's bones and sprang back up to life. And like, even after he was dead, he was healing people. But yet for some reason, he had to go through sickness. We don't know why. Why, why did he have to get sick? Right? <coughs> There's the story of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20. Right? And, and nowhere in that passage does it imply that Hezekiah was sick because of some sin that he had committed or anything. No, he was just, he was sick, right? He got sick. And, and um, at first, Isaiah told him, you know, get your house in order because you're going to die. But then Hezekiah wept and prayed before God and, and uh, God told him, go back, go, go tell Hezekiah, you know, you're going you're gonna to survive. And... and they're instructed to put to offer this medical treatment. They put a poultice on him, and, and he recovered, right? Uh, Daniel, Daniel 8.27, talks about how he was sick af after this particular vision. He was sick for, for several days. Um, in the apostolic scriptures, or the New Testament, we see several examples. For example, Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul talks about how Timothy has... Um, stomach problems and frequent ailments. He should drink a little wine for his stomach. Uh, Trophimus, in 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul, Paul left him sick. That this, guy, this guy had been sick. Uh, Epaphroditus, in Philippians 2.25-30. to 30. Uh, And even Paul. Let's look at this, because this is, this is a bit of a controversial examples, uh, example that people in the faith healing movement really... Uh, try to argue against. So there's there's two passages here. Galatians four thirteen. It says, "You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And although my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me." So it, he doesn't explain exactly what this physical ailment was that he was suffering from, but when he's talking about gouging out eyes and giving him, it, maybe it was a, a problem with his eyes that he was suffering from, like cataracts or who knows? We don't know exactly what it was. So why did Paul have a physical ailment? It, it doesn't, it, Paul doesn't imply here that it was because he lacked faith in that moment or he was in some sort of sin. And then, of course, there's the famous example in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of Paul's thorn. And this is controversial. People in the faith healing movement argue fiercely that, no, it was not a sickness. Paul's thorn. It was, it was uh, 
uh, an opponent, like, like a, you know, because they say, well, it says it was a messenger of Satan. But, but look at this. Uh, look at the language that is used. It says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, just the language that it uses, uh, you know, compare the accounts in the Gospels where many times in the Gospels we see a sickness or a disease linked with demonic activity, right? So, you know, for example, Yeshua drives out a fever. He rebukes a fever as though it's a demon and is casting out a demon. Um, there's, there's many places where it talks about someone having a demon that caused, um, you know, muteness and deafness and, and things like that. And notice that it says that this was in the flesh, right? It, this was an affliction that Paul experienced in his body. Some sort of bodily ailment. So, anyway, that's my opinion. I know there's still going to be people that'll disagree with me on that, but my opinion is that the language Paul uses, he's alluding to some sort of physical ailment. And that's the majority opinion among scholars out there. The expectation given in Scripture is not that all believers will be healthy all their lives, right? It's not that we will be automatically free from ever getting sick, we'll be immune to every disease in the world, we get this get-out-of-jail-free card that lets you always have a way out of any time you're sick. That, that's not the way the Bible talks. So, you know, yes, the Bible talks about healing and the amazing healing that God can provide, but for some reason, God does not always choose to heal, and we don't, don't, we don't know why. That's a mystery that we have to leave in his hands. You know, the fact is that we live in a fallen world, right? And as believers, we are still subject to this fallen world, just as unbelievers are. And the biggest proof of that is that we all die, <laughs> Right? So, so, yeah, sin brought sickness into the world. Sin also brought death into the world. Sickness and death go together. <laughs> right? That's part of this fallen world that we live in. So if you're going to argue that Messiah redeemed us from the effects of sin so that we no longer have to get sick, you should also argue that we shouldn't have to die either. Now, on the long term, he has redeemed us from death. But that's not something we experience in this life. That's some, I mean, we get, to, we get a taste of it in this life. Eternal life starts now. But we still go through death. It's appointed for man once to die and after that to face judgment. So, even though we've been truly redeemed from our sin right now, the full extent of that redemption will not be experienced in this life. We still experience suffering in this world. The difference is that we have hope of greater things to come. There will come a time when God will wipe away every tear from our eye. So God doesn't make our lives cushy just because we're believers. He still allows us to go through hard times. Acts 14.22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in, in Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted. 
But the precious truth that we can always hold on to is that he's always with us in those hard times, right? Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I remember Alfred Bashard would always say, it doesn't say you're not going to go through the water. It doesn't say you're not going to go through the fire. It says that when you go through them, he'll be with you. Right? Okay. So, one of the problems with saying that sickness is always the result of sin is that it results in a message of condemnation. Right? In order for me to believe that I, in order for me to believe that sickness is always the result of sin, <coughs> I have to make a judgment call against every believer in history who has gone through sickness. I have to condemn every righteous person who fails to experience divine healing in their lives. And I know, I know some of us in this room have experienced deep hurt because of that condemnation. And I don't think faith healing proponents realize they're not trying to be hurtful, right? I don't think they realize how cold and hurtful their attitude can be. You know, they, they think they're offering a message of hope, but what they're conveying is a message of condemnation. So, I'm sure there are stories we could share about this. I know a story of an acquaintance of our family. My parents would know this story better than I do. Uh, but the man was born with a particular disease uh, that affected his health, and he had to make frequent trips to the hospital, and he ended up dying by the time he was 30. Um, and his entire life, he and his family lived under the condemnation of of the church that they attended, which adhered to the doctrine of faith healing, right? At first, it was his parents that didn't have enough faith for him to be healed, and, um, you know, when he was old enough, then he took the blame for it, right? He, he, he just didn't have enough faith or something wrong. But, but, you know, if you ever met this guy, he was an amazing person, right? And, and he had an incredible heart for the Lord, an incredible ministry with the, the people in the hospital where he would where he would go and um and god used him to do amazing things right for some reason god chose not to heal him but the pain that it left the burden that it left on him and his family was was heartbreaking you know there's something sacred about being in the presence of people who are going through suffering if you've ever been in a hospital ward filled with terminally ill patients, there's, there's a special atmosphere there, right? It's like, it's hard to describe. Or at a funeral, right? There's something, something special about that, something that, you know, in, in Jewish mourning customs, when, when someone has lost a loved one, you are to go there and be with them but you're not allowed to initiate a conversation with them. You, you just be with them in silence because if, if they want to break the silence and they want to say something, you let them talk and you can have a conversation then, but you don't break that silence because there's something sacred about that, 
right? And that, that's what we see in, when, in the book of Job, when Job's friends go to comfort him. They sat there for seven days before Job finally said anything, and they didn't, they didn't speak the whole time. They let him have the first word, but... So, you know, I think there's, I don't think that people realize how insensitive they can be when they have a theological agenda. I know there's um, a lady in Regina who claimed to have the gift of healing and was very obnoxious about it. And one time she was at a funeral of this little boy who had died. And she interrupted the funeral and said, someone help me take the flowers off this casket. We're going to raise him from the dead. And she didn't realize he had been cremated. And, you know, when we come into a situation like that with our own agenda, we're violating holy ground upon which we have no right to tread right? We're overstepping boundaries that should not be crossed. Romans 12, 15, we're called to weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, right? We need to mourn with those who are mourning. You know, true healing should be easy, right? God's the one that heals. It's not us. It's not something we have to try and work up and conjure up and make it happen ourselves. (coughs) True divine healing should be easy. It should be simple. It should be quick, right? It shouldn't be something difficult or strenuous to try and attain. All it should require is simple faith and a heart submitted to God in complete obedience and submission. So, you know, faith healing theology maintains that Messiah won our healing through his suffering on the cross. So they'll say Isaiah 53 verse 4 by his stripes we are healed. That means that he took the punishment for our sickness so we don't have to go through sickness anymore, right? He bore our sickness on the cross. We shouldn't have to bear that again. But if that's true, then shouldn't Messiah's blood be enough for us? Why do people resort to obsessing over past sins or ancestral curses in order to try and obtain healing? Why does it have to become this spiritual gymnastics episode where you're going through this and that in order to to make it happen, right? I know an individual who experienced miraculous healing. Uh, The doctors discovered something wrong with her and and gave her, you know, uh, a grave diagnosis that said, you know, you may not live much longer. And when she went back for a checkup, miraculous, the issue was completely gone. And in this case the woman was not involved in faith healing circles. She wasn't expecting healing at all. As far as I know, she wasn't even praying for healing. So from a faith healing perspective, she lacked faith, right? And yet God chose to heal her anyway. Why did God heal her with no effort on her part, but then not heal the next person who did everything they could to try and obtain healing? We don't know. We don't have the answers to these questions. But my point is that when God heals, it should be easy. It should be simple. It shouldn't be something we have to 
con go through all these contortions to try and make it happen. I want to read this quote about uh, two prominent faith healing proponents from the past, Dr. A.J. Gordon and Dr. A.B. Simpson. Um, you may have heard those names. Uh, they were two very godly men. Both of these men believed strongly in what we call faith healing. Both of them experienced the healing power of God in their bodies. Both of these men taught that the Christian need never be sick if he will only believe the promises of God. They both taught that the Christian, when he comes to the end of his pilgrimage on earth, need not become sick ere passing into the presence of the Lord. They used the analogy of ripe fruit dropping into the hand of the gardener as a picture of the Christian dying. No death struggle, no wasting illness. Both of these men, however, found that their own philosophy at this point did not work for them. They both fell sick before they died. This caused these godly men considerable spiritual torment. They felt they must be sick because they had sinned against the Lord and spent hours searching their hearts. As a matter of fact, they both fell under a spiritual cloud as a result of their experience. What a pity this should have happened to men as godly and as they and as greatly used. It does serve to show us, however, that even very godly men may be mistaken. Let's talk a bit about faith. In some Christian circles today, I think that faith has been misunderstood. Right? The idea that, you know, it's put this way. Believing God can accomplish something is not enough. Instead, you have to speak with authority and know that it's already done because you've claimed it, right? You name it and you claim it. So, so faith is understood to be an irrational, presumptuous expectation. You, you, you know, the, the more you believe that it's happened, the more that you believe it's true, the more that you believe it really is happening. So, you know, if you're not experienced healing, well, you just need to, you need to imagine it in your mind. You need to see yourself as healed. You need to believe that you're healed, even if you're not. And, you know, this is what faith is, is, you know, arbitrary, arbitrary presumption, right? But this is not biblical faith. What we've done is we've replaced faith in God with faith in faith. In our world today, we're inundated with a sense of entitlement. And I think, sadly, that there are Christian theologies out there that feed on that, right? And this can easily lead to an idea of faith that's centered on self. Faith is what you want it to be. You know, you want, to, you want something, you believe in it, you believe that it's true, you believe that it's happening, you believe that you have a new Cadillac in, a drive, in your driveway and it's going to happen for you, right? That sort of thing. We can't use God's power for our own means. Faith is not some power that you can tap into to get whatever you want. Here's an interesting passage from the Mishnah. This is from uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin, uh, chapter 10. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. This is a famous passage, by the way. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. As it is said... Your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. That's quoting Isaiah 60, verse 21. And these are the ones who have no portion in the world to come. So, so first they're saying, you know, if you're an Israelite, you're in. 
you, you got your ticket. That's, it's a done deal. You're in. But these are the Israelites that don't, they get their ticket revoked or something like that. So if you, if you do something really terrible, you get your ticket revoked. And of course, then they go on to list the things that were pet peeves of the rabbis. <laughs> so these are the ones who have no portion in the world to come. He who says the resurrection of the dead is a teaching which does not derive from the Torah, you know, like the Sadducees. And the Torah does not come from heaven. Um, and an Epicurean, Rabbi Akiva says, also, he who reads in heretical books and he who whispers over a wound and says, I will put none of the diseases upon you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So what's that talking about? <laughs> it's talking about, you know, basically using that verse as a magical spell, right? Well, God said in his Torah, you know, if, if you walk in my ways, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. So you go up to the person and you, you whisper over their wound, and that's going to accomplish healing for them, right? It's like, it's, you know, even 2,000 years ago, charlatans were trying to use this passage to conjure up healing, right? This is the same passage that faith healers today claim as the covenant of healing, God's promise that he will always heal you. We have to be careful as soon as we try to tie God's hands to do what we want him to do based on this or that, because then we're delving very close to what I believe is magic, right? You know, God gives many promises in scripture, and I believe it's good to quote those promises in prayer. I believe we have a right to quote-unquote, remind God of his promises. I believe he desires us to do so. However, we don't do so on the basis of, a, of demanding, right? We do so on the basis of supplication. We cannot pressure God into doing our request on the basis of personal interpretation of his word, and we have to be wary of turning scriptural promises into incantations that can be used at our disposal. The primary difference, or one of the primary differences, between our faith, worshiping the true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his son Yeshua, the difference between that and magic is that in magic, people are the ones in control, whereas in our faith, God is the one who's in control, right? So magic is the idea that by some means, by some spell or ritual or incantation, you can somehow control the deity or the spiritual forces that are out there to do what you want them to do. And sadly, we see this kind of thinking creeping in amongst believers, right? This idea of positive thinking that you can somehow control and manipulate events and somehow twist God's arm into doing what we think you want him to do. And I think we're in danger of going to that extreme when instead of praying and asking God to do things, we tell God to do things, right? Rather than saying, not my will but thine, like Yeshua prayed, we name it and claim it, you know? We're, we're, we're telling God, you do this. So, I think we need to, you know, the Bible doesn't say that faith has the power to heal you, right? That's a twisting of what the scripture says. You, there, you know, there are many places where 
Yeshua says to a person, your faith has healed you. But what he doesn't mean that their faith has some magical power that was able to heal them by thinking positively or this sort of thing, right? What he means is their faith is in God, right? God is the one who healed them because they trusted him. So remember our chart from way back in session one? <laughs> Anyone remember this? So we've got on the left side, um, more predestination kind of theology. On the right side, more free will kind of theology. Or to put it simply, left side is God in control. Right side is man in control. So the extreme form of man in control kind of thinking is that we manipulate spiritual forces and we tell God what to do. And in its extreme, that's magic, right? The Holy Spirit is a force to be used by man. So yeah, in my opinion, when we delve into some of these things, word of faith movement, in my opinion, is very much on the extreme over here. And in my opinion, that's a dangerous place to be. We can't manipulate God's spirit, right? We can't force his arm. We can't twist his arm. We can't, so we can pray and we can seek him, but ultimately we must be willing to submit to his will. Like Yeshua prayed, not my will, but yours be done. When we pray within God's will, it's powerful, right? But I'd like to suggest that merely praying our own will will accomplish nothing as long as it's at odds with his, his will. Our goal should be to know God more, to desire what he desires, to share his heart burden. True faith requires submitting to his will, not simply asserting our own will. R.A. Torrey put it this way. He says, trying to believe something that you want to believe is not faith. In no cases does real faith come by simply determining that you're going to get the thing that you want to get. Look at Luke chapter 17. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted it in the sea, and it would obey you. You know, I, I, when I was younger, I always misunderstood what Yeshua was saying there. I always thought he meant that, well, faith comes in really small quantities, and so the people in this world that have the hugest amount of faith doesn't even measure up to the size of a mustard seed. That's, that's not what his point is at all, right? Well, you, you, this passage is essentially saying that any amount of faith is sufficient for God to accomplish the impossible. You don't need a, a huge superhuman level of faith. You don't need this, this like, gigantic amount of faith. All you need is a, just, just the smallest possible amount of faith. That's all you need for God to accomplish what's impossible. Faith has no power in and of itself. It's the object of our faith. It's God who has all the power. Look at the story in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John healed the, the beggar who was crippled at the temple gate called Beautiful. I always wondered, was it the beggar called beautiful or the temple gate called beautiful? 
<laughs> um, they, didn't, they didn't have to give him a seminar on, on faith, right? They didn't tell him he needed lots of faith in order for this act of healing to work. You know, we're, we're going to try this thing out on you, but, but in order for it to work, you have to really believe that it's going to work, right? Peter didn't say to him, I want you to close your eyes now. I want you to start saying to yourself, I can walk. I can walk. I can walk. And I want you to start envisioning yourself walking and leaping and praising God. And, you know, pretend you have strong, firm ankles. You know, picture it in your mind and start telling yourself that it's real. Have faith. Believe it. More faith. Come on. Peter didn't have to go through any of that, right? It was, it was simple. It was easy. God's power did it. It's not supposed to be something that's difficult or hard to grasp, right? We don't need a gigantic amount of faith. We just need a tiny starting point from which God can work. So we need faith. Faith is vital, but faith is about submitting to and trusting in God rather than working up arrogant presumption. So just to conclude on assessing modern healing movements, so, you know, a question we can ask is, what should we make of modern healing movements, right? What do you do with all these people out there claiming, you know, well, this, this person's able to heal people and these healings take place over here. And what do, you, what do you make of all this, right? What do we do with it? On the one hand, I think it is right for us to be clear about what the scriptures say and expose unbiblical ideas when we encounter them. But on the other hand, I think some people go too far to try to discredit modern healing experiences. I remember meeting a man who was healed at a healing rally in South Africa somewhere. Um, and in my opinions, he had, uh, well, in my opinions, this healing rally had some errant theology, um, things that I would definitely disagree with, and is probably a place I would not be inclined to frequent. But... I can't discount the fact that this guy experienced dramatic healing in his life. His legs were, were crippled and shattered. He could hardly walk. And he came out of that place. And, and I, when I met him, he, he can walk fine. Like, that was an amazing miracle that God performed in his life. I can't discount that, right? And I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to. God should get all the glory for every miraculous healing that takes place among his children. Now, I know that there are fakes out there, sadly, right? There are, as an example, there are a lot of claimed healings over things that are really vague or difficult to verify, right? Like one limb that's slightly longer than another that the person never even noticed before they went to the healing rally and now they're healed of it and their life is so much better and you know vague things like that that's like is that real i don't know right there's also examples where someone is supposedly healed but then the disease returns or 
it's even worse or so, you know, things like that that happen. And you think, was that really a healing that took place? And those stories aren't the ones that get aired on the televangelist networks, right? And tragically, there are con artists out there who, tr who make up fake healings in order to promote their ministry and get more money. It's, it's, tr it's terrible, but it happens. There are people out there, you know, the Bible warns about these false teachers who are greedy for their own gain, right, rather than actually serving the Lord. But there are also real legitimate healings that take place, not just in faith healing circles, right? Not just in this area or that area, all over, right? So, so that's one initial observation, is that I, I think we shouldn't feel the need to try to discredit healing experiences. <clears throat> I think there's this fear that if we admit to genuine miracles taking place in a given group, we have to accept their theology as divinely endorsed. But I don't think that's the case, right? I think the moral of the story here is that God is merciful, and he's able to work in spite of us if he has to, right? He loves to give good gifts to his children. Just because God's spirit moves in our midst doesn't mean we're doing it all right and the others are doing it all wrong, right? We have to let God be God. We have to let him be sovereign. At the same time, we need to sort out the, tr the bunk from the truth. According to the Bible, signs and wonders are not the test of truth. The Bible warns of false signs and wonders in the last days, right? And I think some groups place an unhealthy emphasis on supernatural and paranormal phenomena. We need to keep in mind that signs and wonders do not and cannot produce faith. Look at the Israelites in the wilderness, right? They saw more signs and wonders than I think any of us today. But that didn't keep them from falling into disbelief. So signs and wonders are not going to keep you on track. It's a relationship with Yeshua that will keep you on track. So here's a couple points that I think, I think we can assert the following based on Scripture. Number one, God can and does heal, and he often works through individuals to bring about that healing. Number two, we ought to desire to be used by God as a vessel for bringing healing to others. Number three, for some reason, God chooses to heal some but not others. Number four, we have no right to judge others who are going through sickness or suffering. Number five, the gift of healing, like all the gifts, must be exercised through the filter of love. And number six, we must have faith in God, which requires both trusting in his ability and submitting to his will. That's true faith. So, some practical application of the gift of healing. I want to emphasize again, like we pointed out at the beginning, according to the scriptures, not everyone has the gift of healing. Right? You look in the book of Acts and... Not every spirit-filled believer had the gift of healing. In fact, as far as we can tell, only, only the apostles had that gift. Right? Specific people that were sent out that were healing. 
So um, actually one passage that relates to this is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Paul says, well, starting in verse 11, I've been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the idea is that in Paul's day, <coughs> those who were true apostles um, had special gifts that, that other people didn't. That was, that was understood, that was assumed, right? So, you know, look, for example, at Peter, right? And compare Peter's activity with a list of all the different gifts of the Spirit that Paul mentions and, and other people mention. And it's like, you know, he had most of them, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like he just had one or two. He didn't just have the gift of the apostle. God's Spirit worked through him in a lot of different ways, right? And so the point is that people don't have just one gift, um, and so I think that Paul's point in these lists of the gifts of the Spirit is not that these are exclusive categories that only some people, you know, have this gift, some people have that gift. His point is that we're all gifted differently. Some are gifted as leaders, some are gifted um, in in serving roles, some are gifted in, in all kinds of different things. And Paul's point is that the Holy Spirit gifts even non-leaders in their roles, and that everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a part to play that's important, right? Um, so, with that in mind, in my opinion, we shouldn't expect to see individuals who possess only the gift of healing. In fact, there's no biblical example that I'm aware of of someone with only that gift. Every person mentioned in the Bible who is mentioned as healing people does so in connection with other gifts. And in fact, the healing is always secondary. We don't see Peter or Paul conducting healing seminars, right? That was, it was an important part of their ministry, but it wasn't the main thrust of their ministry. Another thing to keep in mind is that, as I argued in session 10, the office of apostle no longer is, exists today. Because being an apostle required having seen Yeshua after he rose from the dead, and with that came a special authority and responsibility. And there's no one today that has that same level of authority in, in the body of Messiah. For that reason, it would make sense that to me, it would make sense that certain gifts of the Spirit associated especially with the apostles would be less frequent today. So that might include things like prophecy, healing, and miracles. It would make sense. I'm not saying that they have to be less frequent. I'm certainly not saying that they, those gifts ceased altogether. But it wouldn't be a big surprise if they didn't appear as full as they did during the days of the apostles. So that's another point to make. Another point is that, based on the scripture, proper medicine and healing, divine healing, are not at odds with each other, right? We look at the example of King Hezekiah and how Isaiah the prophet um, instructed them to prepare a poultice 
and apply it to him. So he was given medical treatment, right? And, and God brought about healing through that. And so I th we have this tragic idea that if you go to a doctor when you're sick, that you don't have enough faith. Or if you have to go to a hospital, that you don't have enough faith. Like, that's not the way it's described in the scriptures. And remember the passage that talks about the elders coming and, and laying their hands on a person who's sick and anointing him with oil. Well, that word for anointing there, it's not talking about a sacramental kind of anointing, like the Catholic Church thought. In Catholicism, that's one of the seven sacraments, right, is anointing, anointing the sick. It's talking about applying oil medicinally or cosmetically, right? Like, and, you know, in those days it was used as, as a medicine, right? So what that passage is saying is, in modern terminology, take your medicine and pray for him. <laughs> Get him to take his medicine and pray for him, right? So I think a practical application of this gift is that we should not try and separate it from the natural world of doctors and, and, um, and medicine and healthy eating and that sort of thing, right? They all go together. I also want to emphasize that even though not everyone has the gift of healing, we should all be praying for God's healing in our lives and in the lives of those around us whenever there is sickness, right? Some of us, some of us may need more wide-eyed, innocent faith. We need to accept the kingdom like a child, right? To be humble and reliant on our, our Father in heaven. So having a simple childlike trust in God being willing to ask him and trust him for things that seem impossible, right? Not in an arrogant way, but in a humble way where we realize that our, our Father in heaven knows everything and he's able to provide for our needs. Some of us may need to be more open to allowing God to use us in ways that go outside our comfort zone. But the key in all this is complete and utter submission to God and his will, right? We have to submit to God. So it's okay to wrestle in prayer. It's okay to be that persistent widow who refuses to let up. But at the end of the day, we have to submit and say, not my will, but yours. Here's a quote from Wesley Duell. No one can produce a supernatural gift by his own choice. He cannot choose the occasion or time when it will be manifested. He can only obey the Spirit's promptings and guidance and humbly depend on God, giving all the glory to God. The gift is the working of the Spirit and thus is under the control of the Spirit, but is manifested only as we obey and cooperate with the Spirit. Thus no one can heal anyone he chooses, whenever he chooses, or in a manner he himself chooses. All healing is from God. One can follow the scriptural injunction to pray for healing, can be guided to pray for the healing of a particular person at a particular time, and can be given faith for a particular physical need. The healing power, however, is always God's power and is always subject to the lordship of the Spirit and the will of the God. So every healing that takes place, just like all the other manifestations and gifts of the Spirit, it's meant to be a little taste of the coming kingdom. One day, we'll all experience ultimate healing, the restoration of our physical bodies, right? And for that time, we eagerly wait. But in the meantime, God often shows us little glimpses of his power and a little foretaste of the good things that are coming. So 
This concludes our discussion of the gifts of the, the, gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> um, we've been on this for a long time now, right? Uh, I think it's been about 20 episodes. <laughs> Six different sessions broken up into about 20 episodes. So after this, we're going to be looking at several individual topics on the topic of the Holy Spirit as we wrap up our series. Um, but in concluding this section and talking about the gifts of the Spirit, I, I want to emphasize two things. The sovereignty of the Holy Spirit and the importance of love. So first of all, God is sovereign. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts as he wills. God is sovereign, and for whatever reason, he chooses to allow um, more manifestations and miraculous activity at certain times and in certain places than others, right? So gifts and miracles, I believe, are available today, but it's not our prerogative to exercise them, right? There are times when the Spirit is at work in incredible ways, and there are other times when it feels kind of dry. And that's God's prerogative. And, you know, throughout history, the abundance of miraculous activity goes through seasons and ebbs and flows, just like it did in Bible times, right? We read about how there were times when prophecy was rare, there were times when it was abundant. And I think, I think even in each of our lives as individual, we get a little microcosm of that, right? In each of our lives, there are times when it's like God's doing all these amazing things and it's like, whoa, you know, I can't believe it. And then there are other times where it feels kind of dry. And we go through these seasons, right? And, and, and it's okay. It's not wrong to go through seasons like that. Um, you know, we, we should be seeking God in those times, but Ultimately, he's the one that's sovereign, he's the one in control, and he has control over how and when certain gifts are manifested. And our, our goal needs to be to be in as much submission to him as we can so that we can be used by him. So that's first of all, God is sovereign, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. Secondly, the gifts of the Spirit have to be practiced through the filter of love. We talked about this. And love we defined as discerning the body the common good, considering others, committed relationships. So in other words, when you're exercising a gift, you have to think first about those around you. Will it edify them? Will it bless them? If not, then according to the scriptures, it doesn't belong in the congregation, right? So everything has to pass the litmus test of love, meaning others-oriented, focusing on the needs of others before my own needs. So in closing, I just want us to remember that, as we've said, the Holy Spirit is, is God's special gift to us. And he's the guarantee of the coming kingdom. He's the life force of the kehilah, of the assembly of God's people. He, the defining characteristic of those who are in Messiah and it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to, with gifts to use for the building up of the kahila. But it's up to us to submit to the Spirit. Just because we have the Spirit or have access to the Spirit 
doesn't mean we're walking in the Spirit's fullness. I've quoted this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, as one writer put it, there, there's no time, there is no time to be thinking about whether or not we have the person of the Holy Spirit. There is only time to completely surrender the throne of our lives so the Holy Spirit has us. And that's the real question here. Does the Holy Spirit have you? Have you submitted your life completely to Yeshua? The more we submit to him, the more he's able to work in us and through us. So let's close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for your spirit and we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have called us and chosen us to serve you and to follow you and to be your witnesses and to be ambassadors for your kingdom. I ask that you would help each one of us to submit our hearts and our lives completely to you and that you would empower us in your service to do great things. Please guide us in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.